right, here we are. This is the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel. Welcome back. And in this conversation, I'm going to be talking with Greg Thomas about cultural intelligence. And I am lit up like a Christmas tree because I went into this conversation feeling like when I saw he has this online program, uh, Cultural Intelligence Transcending Race, Embracing the Cosmos, I thought this is this is great, but after the conversation I've just had with him, I'm like, this is crucial. This is a crucial lens through which we need to see the world, to recognize that it's the it's the the water we're swimming in, and how it can be an antidote to these times, and be a crucial path towards liberating the creativity of humanity. So that's a bold thing I'm saying there, but. Um, we're going to talk in this conversation today about why culture and not race, yeah? And everything is a lot about race at the moment. And so Greg will share about why he thinks it should be about culture. We'll talk about wokeness. We'll talk about um, what cultural intelligence allows for, what kind of practices uh, do we need to embody to engage in it. And we'll also talk about the embodiment of culture. That's where this gets really interesting. It's like, how can we recognize that we are embodying culture already? And what does it allow for when we do? So a few more words about Greg. He's a writer, a teacher, an entrepreneur, and the CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project. And in these times with the pandemic, he's been featured more on platforms such as Rebel Wisdom, The Daily Evolver, The Stoa, and our platform too. He was in our summit last year. And he also taught this nine-week online course, Cultural Intelligence, Transcending Race and Embracing Cosmos. That's kind of what we're going to go into today. Okay, so that all being said, uh, if you're not on our mailing list, cool, join it. Uh, You just have to head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box you find there and you'll stay in the loop about upcoming podcasts and other things we create. And that's it. Let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Greg Thomas. So great to be with you, Greg. How's great things? to be with you, Joel. Yeah. yeah, I'm having a lot of fun already in our check-in and I'm excited about our topic today. We're going to talk about cultural intelligence. I just think this is just... Um, one of the topics of our time. So um, we'll dive into that. And I just, I'm curious what inspired you to create, before you name what cultural intelligence is, what inspired you to actually create that body of work? Well, it, it ties into my being a part of the integral community. Um, Steve McIntosh, who's an integral philosopher, whose most recent book is uh, developmental politics. Uh, in fact, uh, I want to give the full title, Developmental Politics, How America Can Grow Into a Better Version of Itself. Um, he actually has used the term cultural intelligence to identify ways to understand human beings as individuals and as part of groups across time and history as being basically uh, tied to 
traditional values, modern values, postmodern values, and then um, post postmodern uh, orientations and, and frameworks and values. So a friend of mine, Matt Ludmer, who is the founder of the Align Center in Irvington, New York, in Westchester County, um, he came across that term after reading Steve, and then he connected me, he, he connected with me, he said, you know, we're looking at creating our curriculum for the coming season, and we're looking at our models and our topics and themes, and we realize that there's a gaping hole in terms of culture. And I didn't feel, he says, I was the right person to really deal with that. And I thought of you, because he knows that culture has been a, an abiding area of deep, deep study in relation to music, in relation to democracy, in relation to a lot of things. And he figured that a course on cultural intelligence would be great. So he proposed it to me um, early summer. And I accepted, I agreed, I created the curriculum and the outline. And it's been really excellent. It was a good challenge to meet because it allowed me to bring together so many of my interests um, and so many of my passions in a way that I feel that I can help others and bring this topic to the world at a time where I think it's so needed. Yeah, because last time we spoke, we spoke about, we were talking about race um, and diversity and um, developmental models and how they might need to be adapted and updated. And um, when I look at this um, work you're creating, it seems to be, one of the salute the, the the paths forward um, in this you know heated um, ex- conversation we're in, and it, which is focusing a lot around race at the moment, and of course gender as well. But um, and I just wonder, um, yeah, maybe you could say how you see that situation, and then where culture fits in. Yeah, absolutely. The title of the course is Cultural Intelligence: Transcending Race embracing cosmos and the transcending race portion looks at race as an idea that is about 500 years old in human history, particularly in the West and how it started as a folk idea um, that was actually applied to people in the same family or groups. But then with the history of, capitalism and colonialism where there was a need for labor. And in the Americas, particularly North America, of course, Native Americans were looked at as the initial labor pool, Um, but they helped basically destroy Native American culture and Native American peoples, though of course they are still uh, present. in the United States on reservations and, and, and their own communities. But then they had to look for labor sources elsewhere. And so Africans became one of the pools, even though before the nation became a nation officially, 
um, with the Declaration of Independence and the creation of the Constitution and then the Bill of Rights, you had Black folks like many immigrants from Europe as indentured servants, which is a different status. But then that changed from an indentured service servant status to a form of slavery, chattel slavery, where individuals who had that categorization were slaves for life. This is a different kind of slavery. Slavery has been around in human history and human civilizations for thousands of years, but this was a different form of slavery. And so if you look at traditional cultures, to use that traditional modern postmodern framework we mentioned earlier, you know, traditional cultures have certain myths and certain stories and narratives that undergird their belief systems. So from the traditional perspective, race was looked at and, and justified from a very ethnocentric perspective. Um, you have certain stories in the Bible, like the story of um, Jacob's sons, uh, Ham and Shem and Japheth and others. And there was a justification for slavery from a mythological or ethnocentric perspective that supposedly Ham looked at his father naked and therefore his people were cursed and those people were connected with people who uh, ended up being Africans. From a modern perspective, you had the scientific revolution and you had in the 19th century um, with Darwin and the theory of evolution and how some applied that theory to social groups that there were certain social groups more evolved than others. And therefore, if you see certain groups of people who are on the lower end of the total pole, then that's basically the way it happened because of evolution. And that's just the way it's supposed to be. So it gave a modern scientific justification of that. So we look at race as an idea and a concept which truly doesn't have validity in terms of a biological reality, but does have reality as a social construction, which is the postmodern variant, that in terms of the way we look at social groupings, that race has become real through that type of dynamic. And so we were able to analyze race historically and look at it for what it is and say, you know something, it is a ascribed category that one actually doesn't have to agree with or accept. So we looked at some works that look at what's called a non-racial identity and a non-racial worldview. Um, so that's one part of it. So the idea is it's, it's important to transcend the limitations of the very concept of race, which is a foundation for racialization, which is putting race, uh, the process of putting racial categorization through a society and breaking groups up into these different racial categories. And also racism, which is an enactment of invidious difference based on that ascribed category, right? So culture, on the other hand, is a category of human identity, human development, human reality 
that is a much stronger and a firmer ground to look at sameness among humans and differences among humans, okay? And the embrace cosmos part uh, refers to, yes, a cosmic perspective um, from one perspective, you know, looking at um, having an enlarged viewpoint as you as a member, as you as a, uh, a part of a widening and expanding universe that's alive, um, but it also has to do with a philosophical concept called rooted cosmopolitanism, which was developed by the philosopher Anthony Appiah and further extended and elaborated by one of my favorite political philosophers, Danielle Allen of Harvard. Um, and rooted cosmopolitanism basically says that you can be rooted in various forms of identity, but also have identifications that are beyond your particular groups. And you can have what's called an equitable self-interest as opposed to a rivalrous self-interest. And cosmopolitanism or cosmo being cosmopolitan has two parts in terms of its etymology. So you have the cosmos, which has to do with order. And then you have the polis, which has to do with citizenship, being a, a citizen of the polis, right? So that's where cosmopolitan means being a citizen of the world or being a citizen of the cosmos. So I just kind of gave you a long way around yeah. to, to describe the various dimensions of the course and uh, kind of try to sum up yeah. uh, what we're for, what we're against and why. And, um, and perhaps the contribution to the dialogue and discourse around many of these topics uh, it can make. Yeah, because there's a lot in what you just said. And um, one of the things I heard you say was like culture is like a, um, I can't remember the exact words you used, but like a stronger or a more wholesome ground to stand on than race, I think you said. And that the, the what I heard you say was like, we've invented racial categories, which have then, uh, perpetuated racism and um what i want to comment on here it seems like um that there's a movement now whereby like when i grew up like we were saying race didn't matter or the color of your skin didn't matter but now it seems to be that that um does matter a lot you know and so um that yeah, they were, like, they were like reinforcing the importance of race at the moment, not transcending it, as you're saying, is like a, a way forward in this. Do you, yeah, what do you like? What do you do? You see that too, and yeah, yeah. I do. Oh, that's very strong. Yeah. And and actually, I want to make a clarification, though I have identified myself as non-racial. Mm. and more as a cultural agent, a rooted cosmopolitan cultural agent <laughs> in the world. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to pose it as if I think that those who emphasize ethnic identity, racial identity, um, though I disagree with the category of race, I don't want to automatically say those people are wrong. Those people are misled because when you look at identity, there got, there's got to be grounds for identity, right? 
Some people use nation. Some people use family and ethnic group. Others use race. I think race is a very, very slippery slope as a form of identity. How come? It's a very slippery slope because it's, it's certainly not grounded in biology, for one thing. It's grounded in a history of being used as a basis to separate people and to categorize people in an invidious fashion where you have this, the justification for what basically is a caste system. It's a term that the great journalist Isabel Wilkerson used as the title of her latest book. Um, it's, very, it's a slippery slope because if I say, for example, I have pride in my blackness, okay, as a counter to the degradation and oppression that has been uh, perpetuated upon my particular ethnic group, my particular cultural kin group, right? Then there are others who can take pride in their racial identity, which on the surface can be okay if conceived of in a certain way, but I almost think you have to conceive of it in a kind of a second tier uh, from a spiral dynamics perspective, as uh, a colleague of mine in the UK did, he um, he shared with me an idea. Well, that if we look at races as you know different groups of people, uh, different colors of people, as a part of a garden, uh, and it's just a garden of beautiful differences, that's actually conceivable at a second tier, more to use the spiral dynamics and, and integral terminology, yellow or teal or you know, even turquoise perspective, that's understandable. But first of all, there's so few people who are at that level of consciousness, let alone having even heard of the concept, um, that it's very abstract, okay? So it's, so it's also slippery because Pride in itself, in identity, as a generality, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there needs to be more of a grounded basis for your identity than race, okay? Mm. So there are racial identities that are formed in response to oppression, right? But see, for me, when I say Blackness, I always qualify by saying Black American, so I position myself in where I'm from in terms of my nationality. So when I say Black American, I actually don't mean race, I mean culture. So if right. I say Blackness from a cultural perspective, that's one thing. That's a different thing. That's a different dynamic. So that's my framing of it, okay? But I think that culture, again, allows us to look at what's the same or similar amongst human beings, what's different amongst human beings, and being okay with it and, and giving a basis for us being able to have dialogue and conversations with each other where those samenesses and differences don't have to be the basis for rhetorical and political warfare, but a basis of appreciating what we share in common as humans and what, what's different and looking at it is in a very aesthetic way as beautiful. There's nothing wrong with being different 
As a matter of fact, and see, this is my New York bias. <laughs> I think I talked about this before. I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, uh, lived in Manhattan, worked in the various boroughs, lived in Westchester. And we're talking about a very diverse place, though, of course, there are pockets of segregation. There are different class levels, all of that, of course. But if you're talking about New York City proper, man, I grew up around folks who were Jewish, Polish, Italian, uh, 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 Irish. I mean, all of these different groupings. So I'm, it's like, it's, it, to me, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm actually intrigued by the differences. My great mentor and teacher, Albert Murray, said this a few times. Only a few times, but I think it's very important. And I put this um, in some of my writings on Murray. He says, usually when, you, when it comes down to human difference, there's two ways that human beings respond. It's either through xenophobia, fear of the other, hmm. or exotica, where it's like, ooh, that's different. Uh, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Most of the time we focus on the xenophobia, but there's also the exotic dimensions where difference is an allure and attraction as opposed to being something that we're repelled by. You know, so let's let's, let's look at those different dimensions. And and as he said, let's acknowledge both uh, difference as something that we're we're fearful and unsure about, but also something that kind of makes us curious and yeah. makes us intrigued. And let's lean more on the intrigued and curious side and engage in actual conversations with us across the boundaries of difference. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. I think that's why we talked about Robin D'Angelo's work, why like I couldn't quite fit with it because I, I felt like just put into a category based on race. And then I was just enclosed in that, you know? And I was like, okay, is she pointing at some important stuff? Of course. But like somehow I just, there's nowhere for me to go with this, you know? And it's not creating what I think she wants to create, which is, you know, uh, well, I don't know exactly what she wants to create, but yeah, that was, that was my sense with it. And it, I'm reminded of that as you talk about the, some of the flaws of just focusing on racial identity as opposed to culture. And also like the idea of like the, the, maybe the good side of cultural appropriation is that exotica, you know, like we're, we're seeing different cultures and we, um, we're, we're, we want to like engage with it, you know, and, and taste it. And um, it's interesting that you say the good side of cultural appropriation, because first of all, that's a very nuanced and sophisticated way of putting it. So I want to mm. acknowledge that and applaud you for that. Because most of the time, when you mention the term cultural appropriation, it's looked at as an unequivocal negative. It's wrong. You shouldn't appropriate culture. But yet another one of the icons of of cultural intelligence, Ralph Ellison, who was good friends with Albert Murray, as he said, and I'm going to speak in the vernacular, a vernacular tone, baby, that's what culture's about. <laughs> Appropriation is what culture is. We look at things from other groups of people and we adapt and say, oh, let me try that on for size. 
So that's more of a neutral definition of appropriation. The negative definition of appropriation is when you steal without giving due recognition to the origin of what's being stolen. That's actually bad cultural appropriation. Right. Okay. Yeah. But appropriation just as a cultural dynamic and process, that's the way it works. You see something that you like or that's, that appeals to you or you're curious about. Wow. Let me try that. So the great, the, the great, quote unquote, white jazz musicians in the 1920s and 1930s who heard Louis Armstrong, who heard um, greats like Coleman Hawkins, Sidney Bechet, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and were in their hearts, in their bodies, in their souls were moved and said, I like that, I need that. And something about that that I want and then became musicians in that form, they're not appropriate. Well, they're not negatively appropriating. They are adapting themselves to a culture that they feel they're a part of, that they can identify with. So that's how culture can be something that can bridge our differences that we can all share. So ultimately, we look at culture as a gift. Cultural artifacts are a gift to the world. No, they should not be stolen and they should not be the people who grounded it and founded a particular, say, art form. They should be recognized as the founders. But once it's a once it's founded and it's in the world and distributed and shared through people playing it, through hearing it on the radio or the TV or the Internet. It's it's a part of the cultural goods, the common the commonality of of culture as um, goods that we can all share in. And so you can see the aesthetic and dimensions of beauty as a part of all of this. The problem with D'Angelo and some of her approaches and not only her with the whole woke um, anti-racist movement is that in some of those workshops, you have the, um, you have race that's not critiqued as a concept. It's accepted and reified as a concept. So that's my first problem. It's not challenged, it's reified and reinforced. And then the tables are turned which from a certain perspective, you know, is good for people who identify as white or who are ascribed as white to listen to people who are ascribed as black uh, and identify as black racially. That's important because it hasn't happened enough. So that is a good. But if I then turn around and say, not only do you have to listen to me, that you have to except based on you being ascribed as white, you being not only racialized in that way, but you being a racist. I'm sorry. That's some bullshit. (laughs) That's just some bullshit. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? To ascribe racism, which actually in the West and in America in particular 
because of the development of social movements, civil rights movement, being a racist is like being a moral cretin. If you are called a racist, that's why using that term should be used very selectively because it's so powerful. And people are just using it willy-nilly, calling this one and that one a racist, using terms like white supremacy. I, I also willy-nilly, just you know, yeah. white supremacy. These terms have to be critiqued. What did yeah. Albert Murray say? He says the folklore of white supremacy. It's a folklore. So 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 you have to give nuance to it. Another nuance is by Resma Menachem, the author of My Grandmother's Hands who coined the term cultural somatics, dealing with how racialized identities are in our bodies, in our nervous system, and is connected to intergenerational trauma. Very powerful. He says, it's not just white supremacy, it's white body supremacy. That actually people ascribed as white, they were the ideal of beauty. You see what I'm saying? You see the nuance that you have to bring to this discussion so that people can be accepting of certain terminologies and certain histories, but without having the finger pointed to them as an individual because they're a part of a particular group. That's what happened to black folks. It's like, as an individual, you're part of this group. Therefore, I can treat and have laws and have social uh, 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 restrictions and have literally domination based on you being black. That's messed up. Well, it's messed up though. Of course, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. You know, we are not saying, if I'm speaking from an anti-racist D'Angelo, Ibram X. Kendi perspective, they're not saying that white folks should have the same type of legal restrictions against them. They're not going that far, but they are saying that because there are there are um, biases and definite inequality and inequities that you can point to quantitatively in different social dimensions, that there should be ways of evening the score, literally, okay? Um, And they actually are exercising power or trying to exercise power to do that. So that's what the the goal is, okay? It's not an unworthy goal. It's just anti-democratic. Right. <laughs> it's not democratic in the way they're doing it. It actually is more authoritarian and totalitarian in its orientation and in its style. I got a problem with that. I'm a Democrat. I don't mean democratic. I'm a radical, uh, I'm a, uh, uh, I, I've, di- I've described myself and, and, uh, define myself as a radical moderate. So I'm mm-hmm. neither Democrat nor Republican. I'm a radical moderate, but I am a I am democratic in my orientation, in my value system. So I chafe against that wherever I see it coming from whomever I see it. Okay. Right. So um, you were right, I think, to feel uncomfortable. And put into a box. You shouldn't be put into a box. Your identity, as all of our identities, are multiplicitous. 
we have all kinds of aspects to our identity. So to point to your racial description and make judgments upon you based on that racial description, I'm sorry. That's racist. That is one of the fundamental definitions of what being a racist or having a racist ideology is. Because it's applied to white folks, it makes it not racist. No, I'm sorry. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that's also why, you know, that message won't actually change much because a lot of people just feel that immediately and then they're just not willing to listen in a way that we all need to start listening to each other more. And I'm just curious how for you then cultural intelligence comes into play here. Um, like as well, like what the practices are, how we can apply it. I know you, you said that, you know, you've even been talking to professors in schools who are being faced with a very strong woke ideology. And so, yeah, what, what does, what is culture, what, you know, what is cultural intelligence in a way in practice? Yeah. Good question. Thank you. There are many angles from which to look at it, but I'm going to, I want to stay very practical because you basically are saying, well, what can people do? Um, One thing they can be more open to listening. They need to, I think more people need to develop their listening skills. This is something in the Jazz Leadership Project that my wife and I have founded and run, and we work with organizations to develop a fundamental value and practice of listening so that you're actively listening, you're present, that you're actually listening with your heart involved, empathetic listening, and then you're listening from a perspective that Otto Schaumer of Theory U at MIT calls generative listening. You're listening from a perspective that let's work together to make a better future. So as I listen to you with my head and my heart, I'm going to listen to you in a way that together we can actually work together to make a better future. Right. So listening as a foundation for better dialogue and better conversation. So conversation, skilled conversation, even in the David Bohm sense of dialogue is what is largely needed. So that's one thing that's needed. Another practice is to learn more about folks who are different from you, different from your particular identity or the identification or identifications. The more we learn about each other, the more we can appreciate what's similar and what's different about each other. That's another thing. Another practice of cultural intelligence would be the Steve McIntosh uh, version, where we look at human history And we look at the development of ourselves as individuals in a developmental manner Mm. where if you just use the basic categories of traditional worldview, modern worldview, postmodern worldview, that these are different ways of seeing and being in the world, right? And usually, and this is the first tier we alluded to before, um, when modernism comes along, it really, really has a strong critique of traditionalism. So it's, you know, what's mythological or based on narrative or belief? Well, if it's not based on empirical evidence and, 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 and scientific proof, then 
we can't give credence to it, which then becomes a basis for what John Verveke calls the meaning crisis. Right. Because so many of us derive meaning from the myths, the stories, the narratives that comprise the stories of who we are from a religious and spiritual perspective, you know? Then postmodernism comes along and does a heavy critique of modernity, okay? You know, particularly the sides of modernity that, as I said before, were used to justify colonialism, capitalist justification of caste systems and of slave, slavery and enslavement, okay? But what that critique misses is not only the things that were horrific and terrible, it also doesn't acknowledge what was beautiful and blissful about modernity, the things that were good about that stage of human development. And when we talk about much of the critique coming from the woke, anti-racist perspective, it's centered in a postmodern worldview, okay? The problem with the postmodern worldview from, the, from a rooted cosmopolitan perspective is that critiquing and deconstructing can only take us so far. We have to be able to reconstruct in order to build criteria that gives us the way to work together, to move together, to live and love together, even if we are different, to belong together. You see what I'm saying? And yeah. this is the hope of an integral perspective, a meta-modern perspective, a post-postmodern perspective. This is some of the hope that is in those, those frames of reference and those worldviews because they can take us beyond just being against what came before. We could see it, we can understand it, we can embrace what's good about each of those. And even before traditionalism, because there are various stages, even before traditionalism, we can embrace those, we can even try to incorporate those in our lives without looking at those different, looking down and judging those differences as less than. They're different, there's a different way of looking at the world, but does, wh why should an 18 year old look at a six year old and say, oh, you're, you know, you're so stupid. No, they're six years old, man. Right, yeah. So because we know through the research of Robert Keegan, who of course is very big in the Coaches Rises community, uh, justifiably so, and other researchers and development, that development is not just child development, Piaget style. There's also human development into various world views. And therefore, we can be compassionate with those who cannot see these other levels that we're talking about because they haven't experienced enough of the life conditions or challenges that would cause them to then advance to those stages. I mean, cause those are advances, which basically allow you to see the world in a more complex mm. way, to be able to parse the complexity, to be able to have more of a systems dynamics 
way of seeing things. And if you have a systems dynamics way of seeing things, you only look at order from a cosmic perspective, you look at chaos. So chaos theory says that you're gonna have these phase shifts, right? Where you have a transition to use the usual metaphors, a transition from ice to water and water to steam. But these happen with our consciousness also. And a new order can emerge. So the hope is that a new order through all of this chaos that we're going through socially, politically, and otherwise, that a new order will arise. And part of that new order is looking at things from a cultural perspective that we have development, that we have to be able to have conversations across differences, no matter what the developmental stage are. So these are the different skill sets mm. of cultural intelligence. But also, you know, cultural intelligence also acknowledges that uh, um, cultures evolve and cultural mm. understanding evolves. Um, and it's interesting, it's kind of a meta perspective. I take, because I'm so deep into this, I can take a meta perspective. So you actually look at the development in cognitive science and they say, actually, and there are many books that deal with this. Culture is actually, in terms of human development, how we were able to advance so quickly cognitively. It was when culture came into the mix that these developments, these rapid developments beyond or extensions of the genetic foundation occurred. So culture is so important to our development of our embodied cognition, the 4E cognition that I'm sure many of the people listening to this know about. The, the, the cultural dimensions are so, so important um, that highlighting culture, like giving our attention to culture as a dynamic, as a process, as, a, as a, something that is both part of our subjective reality and most importantly, our intersubjective reality, and to use Verveke or reference him again, our transjective reality, okay? What does that word mean? Transjective? Uh, transjective, if I can explain it, and I probably won't do it justice, but transjective, let, let's, I'm going to try to use another Verveke uh, dynamic or framing, the agent arena uh, relationship. So we as individuals are in the world and we have arenas, environments that we are a part of, right? And the relationship is that the agent influences the environment and the environment influences the agent. And as we interact with one another as humans, that's intersubjective. But transjectivity in terms of the agent arena relationship, that's not only human, mammals, have a transjective relationship with their environment. You see what I mean? Yeah. But it's the human's cognitive development and the power of that and the power of our use of symbols and language that allowed us to advance so far and deep. Now we just have to make sure that over the next 10 years in this decade, that is probably the most pivotal decade 
since the transition from hunter-gatherer to the agricultural age. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, this is really, really a serious time. Yeah. So for us to survive what um, there's a, a great document called uh, Rethinking Humanity um, that talks about these ages. So first it was the age of survival, then the age of extraction, where we're extracting the resources from nature and then human resources that are being extracted and exploited to an age of freedom that's enabled by technological developments. Right. But whenever you have these technological developments in the various sectors that they talk about, uh, they talk about the uh, transportation sector, information sector, uh, energy, um, food, uh, information. I don't know if I'm, if I'm repeating myself or missing one, but there's like five sectors that they show in this great white paper, Rethinking Humanity. They show how whenever you have these technological shifts, like the printing press, for example, you have these shifts where things come together and the technology is so powerful that it transforms other sectors of society and society itself. So we are coming to a place now where we have enough technological advancement where the extractive approach to our being in the world, the age of extraction, doesn't have to be. We have enough knowledge and technology to feed all humans. We have enough knowledge and technology to actually allow people to not live in poverty, okay? But one of the things these authors talk about that's really important is not just the technology. So it's not being utopian technologically. You have to have what they call governing systems that allows these, and these changes, these great changes through the technology to be managed socially. And it's not easy. Right. So if we don't get it right in the next 10 years, yeah. It may, we may be done for. So I see cultural intelligence as a way to help us make sure that we come out on the other side of this um, in a way where humanity is better as opposed to us threatening actually the human species as a, as a, as a whole. I was just thinking about when the Industrial Revolution happened and there was like these, I don't know if it's like vodka bars in Manchester, but there were the people became alcoholics, you know, like there was because of the threat they felt to their existence, you know, like. Absolutely. Oh, no, that's, one. that's a great example, man. I mean, that's, that's a great example. You know, you, yeah. you, it's like there's different ways to deal with the meaning crisis. There's yeah. different because each of us, particularly, you know, modern and postmodern, I mean, after modern existence, where we as we where our personhood, our individuality is more accented. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what do we value? What does life mean? These are deep philosophical questions that many people avoid. If they can get a job, take care of their family, <laughs> you know, have right. some friends, you know, it's okay. But there are people who Let's say you get you get rich, right? 
after a while you're going to say, is materialism all it is? Is, is it just about material uh, reality? So deeper questions come into play. What does this all mean? What is this for? So I think that some people respond by um, sedating themselves, self-medication through drugs, alcohol. Some do it through sex, right? Uh, there's different ways of not dealing with and confronting these fundamental questions. But if you can face these questions and embrace some meta values, love, compassion, you know, generosity, and work with people to help them flourish. Because if we can help each other flourish, then we don't have a reason to freaking go to war with one another. But it, but, but that mindset to go from the yeah. age of abstraction to the age of freedom, man, we're talking about a heavy mind shift, a heavy worldview shift, but you have to have the governing structures in place to enable the transition, which is why people who are in metamodernism uh, integral groups, why uh, coaches rising, coaches who are dealing with individuals who are executives and companies, people who are growing. It's all about how do we manage this? Well, partly about how do we manage these shifts? How do we pe help people make transitions through their intergenerational trauma or their own trauma that they experience so that they can grow and not be stuck emotionally. So here's another answer. I've been coming a long way around to this point to answer your question about cultural intelligence. Cultural intelligence from another angle is kind of a midpoint in between emotional intelligence and social intelligence. So emotional intelligence, if you, if you deal with uh, Daniel Goleman, you know, has to do with, um, you know, a combination of managing one's emotions uh, or recognizing one's emotions, managing one's emotions, then in your interactions with other people, uh, being able to interact with them in a pro-social manner. And then it goes to more of a social intelligence, being able to engage with wider groups of people in a pro-social manner. Now, he would probably describe it differently, but um, emotional intelligence is that process of being able to understand and recognize one's emotions in a way that one can get through the things that uh, hold us back psychologically, those psychological shadows and such and things like that, to have a, a more fruitful, generative relationship interpersonally and pro-socially mm -hmm. with others, right? Social intelligence is what I alluded to just now. I mean, that has to do with how do we engage in social situations, social settings, social scenes, in, a, in the wisest fashion that we can, that's appropriate for the situation. Cultural intelligence, I think, is a way to combine emotional intelligence and the meanings, tools, and values, and practices, and artifacts of creation that come from human creativity that we can point to culture, in a way to then allow us to engage in that pro-social uh, dynamic, that social intelligence. So that's how some of the, all this stuff fits together. I mean, some of this is rambling because this is still in development.
No, but I mean, so I don't have I, a linear. It's not a linear kind of thing, you know. Yeah. It's very holistic. So there's different ways of looking at it, and and yeah. I'm hoping that people are staying up with my ramblings. Well, I don't see them like that, and I'm. Let me say what it brings up in me. It's like, Good. Um, first of all, uh, as you talk about the next decade and this shift we're going through, I. You know, and and this idea of you know modern, uh, postmodern, meta modern, meta values. Like what started to happen to me was like I think I started to get an embodied sense of of like meta culture. Oh, nice. So nice. Um, it's hard to describe it, but it's like it's like I, I feel very expanded in in my sense of identity mm. and. Um, very I- incredibly inclusive, you know, which yes. is interesting, isn't it? Like that's yes. interesting because it's like that's what a lot of people in this woke movement are talking about, but it doesn't seem to be like actually what they're creating. It's well, it's polarized. inclusive for those who agree with them, <laughs> right? Exactly, and so <laughs> right know, now, but, yeah, but, but it's important for them to highlight if you talk about some of these spaces, you know, diversity equity and inclusion and two uh, folks who are connected with and work with Jennifer Garvey Berger, um, I think uh, Bernice Jones oh, yeah. and, and Akasha, Akasha Saunders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have a, and I just happen to have it here. They have a beautiful uh, grouping that they've been doing cultivating leadership yeah. where to diversity, equity, inclusion, they add belonging. Right. Because belonging is something that we all need and, and, and can embrace. And they use that as a way to transcend, but include difference at the same time. Yeah. Very beautifully done. So, that, so you're right. It is metaculture. I want to give another yeah. reference because yeah. I've been, I've been um, influenced recently by the work of, of Dr. Greg Enriquez, psychologist and really meta psychological theorist who in his work has really dealt with what he calls the problem of psychology and the problem of the enlightenment. He and John Verveke have had a series of 12 or 13 conversations about the problem of consciousness. What's his name? Greg Enriquez. Okay, cool. And he has something called the theory of knowledge and then a united theory of, of knowledge. And he has a, a, a framework where you start at the level of physics, right? So you start with energy and matter. And then out of matter comes life. And then out of life comes mind and culture. What he calls metaculture is how we, when we get to AI, we get to human culture connecting it with AI. And there's a lot of fraught uncertainty there, no question. But the potentials that I was talking about earlier, man, is really there with a metacultural perspective where so many of the things that for thousands of years now have caused us to uh, be in warfare with one another throughout human history, to feel that we have to dominate and oppress others, we're getting to a place where that doesn't have to be the case. And so we can work towards, and it sounds utopian. In many ways, it may be 
the problems that we have as human beings and the human condition, that's not going away. But it certainly can be better than it is. And we have the capacity, the cognitive capacity and the technological and cultural capacity to do it. So I love the fact that you hear and feel in an embodied way an expansive notion of culture and embrace of these values in a way that is truly inclusive. That's really what second tier is supposed to be about. Right. Right. That's about being inclusive of all these stages of development in a way where you can embrace it. But when you look at the negatives of those stages, you say, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes to the good. No to the not so good. Right. You know, um, so that we can move forward with more kind of enlightenment 2.0. You have the you have the uh, evolution of consciousness and the evolution of culture, so that you can have the evolution of society and the globe overall. So it is it is utopic in its vision, but maybe it's more like the term that uh, some integral colleagues of mine use: utopia with an e. Right. You know, say more so about e, that. Yeah, right. E U T O P I A. So when you look at the 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 E U, uh, you think of, of terms like eudaimonia, flourishing. E. So it's a very positive connotation. So instead of looking at utopia as something that is just fanciful and unrealistic, and because of the past utopias, just you that have turned into bloodbaths. The, 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 the Marxist, which became the communist vision um, and en enacted certain utopias were this turned out to be bloodbaths, even religious utopias. Mm. I'm going to force you to believe what I believe because it's good for you. And therefore, I will kill you so that your soul can ascend. I mean, I mean, just yeah. ridiculous notions like that mm. so utopia is how can we frame envision and devise and use our imagination to devise ways of of, of uh, collectively working together to flourish so I, that we can flourish the rooted identities can flourish and the more cosmopolitan global can flourish also because that's what we need yeah so, so so these these concepts are really psychoactive yeah yeah that that's that's exactly it for me i think this is where a lot of stuff comes together where um you know the experiential intensity of the complexity of the cosmos and how our collective trauma um, actually doesn't allow us to feel that in a way where we can harness the creativity needed. And so maybe that's the phase we're in now. Where, like my wish would be that we would start to, you know, you mentioned cultural somatics, I think. Uh, was that yeah. the term you used? But Yes, the, cultural the, somatics. That, uh, Resma Menachem, right. um, who was a counselor and, he, he, and a writer, author, he came up with that term. That's like how culture is 
in our very body. So that's kind of connected to the concept of um, embodied cognition, you know? Right. So it's not that it's not, you know, like the uh, dualistic, you know, reason versus emotions. No, emotions comprise the basis for reason. And yeah. those things work together. And when we have trauma, particularly unresolved trauma, they come up and they interfere with our growth and our flourishing. It interferes with our conversation and interpersonal interactions with others. And yeah. this is happening across the board. So there has to be some depth work, right. shadow work that's done so we can deal with the very realities of this. And this is one of the, the maybe the a positive outcome of anti-racism and wokeness pointing to the pain in right. such a way that we actually deal with it. Cause we can't, we can't elide it. We can't not deal with the pain that people have gone through the suffering that yeah. people have gone through. We we, we got to admit it and we've got to work through it. Right. But we can't just stay there in that mold. We have to include and transcend it at the same time. And I think cultural intelligence is yeah. a way that we can do that. I want. I want to because just uh, as a just a, um, I think that's what I like about what they're doing is they're pointing to the pain, but it's like done in a way where we can't actually be properly in the pain in a way that allows it to move because it's like it's still almost like a victim identity and uh, so like it's and, not and then, like it. It's, it's not like a victim. It is a victim identity. And I right. know when, when people, some people hear that, they automatically think of a politically conservative critique. And I would just say that, yes, political conservatives do give that critique, but just because political conservatives give it doesn't mean it ain't true. Okay. Right. I mean, because I mean, a victim ideology is pernicious. Well, Something that in our class last night, our cultural intelligence class, we actually were talking about how a victim identity and that, you know, whole drama triangle, you know, victim oppressor and all of that, those dynamics come into play. And if you actually adopt an identity as a victim, you don't take responsibility yourself. Well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. Like, like I think it's locking it all in. Like what I know about healing is if I'm a, if I'm persecuting you, um, and you're a victim, then it's locked it in, it's reified. And so we need a different, so they're, they're pointing to the pain, that's good, but we need a different way of being to be with that, which I think you're articulating. And I came into this conversation feeling like, oh, like I love what Greg's up to. This really resonates with me, but I leave this conversation feeling like this is incredibly important. You know, I'm, I'm about to go on a call soon with Thomas Hubel, who's doing Ooh, work around yes collective uh, trauma work Absolutely. and so like but i hear this and i'm like yeah this embodied sense of culture is something i haven't given appreciation for but you know for the sake of this um uh what did you call it uh not you uh Udeman, um, oh, utopia with an e. utopia with an e. <laughs> flourishing collective intelligence yes. we need to come together as a species and find new ways of living in freedom and sustainability and so, you know, I think I'm feeling like a, tr a strong transmission of, of the call towards that right now as I speak to you. And so uh, I really want to acknowledge 
the work you're doing and, and, and say like, I know we're at time and where can we find out more about what you're up to? Uh, a few places. Thank you so much, Joel. I appreciate your, your, your feedback, your um, embodied reaction, your cognitive reaction, <laughs> your embodied co- cognitive reaction. In terms of the course, culturalintelligencecourse.com is where they'll be able to get information on the course, though we are at this uh, at the end of this first round of the course. But, I, but just to be able to read about it, to stay in touch with uh, uh, what the work that I'm doing, uh, my business that I have with my partner in life and business, uh, Jewel Kins Thomas, Jazz Leadership Project, the Jazz, I'm sorry, jazzleadershipproject.com. And then our blog, and this is this is a free blog in terms of this is our content extension, tuneintoleadership.com, where these ideas from the perspective of leadership, team development, integrating jazz as a cultural model for, for those, uh, and these various issues we've been talking about is integrated in sh- relatively short essays. Uh, we've, we've it's been a little over a year now that tuneintoleadership.com has been out here and we're going to be going into more. And I will say this publicly in 2021, I will be launching a podcast on you cultural intelligence. So <laughs> you, said it. you said it. So people should be on the lookout uh, for that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, I love that. I'm just saying that to everyone listening, because you said at the start, like, I'm not sure if I should say it publicly because then I'm, you know, I have to do it. So I'm like, you said it. <laughs> that's great. For me, these conversations, I want to be part of that cultural evolution, you know, yes. like I've always said, oh, I don't want to sound, um, what's the word, grandiose, but no, it's like, yeah, it's coming. There's something happening through us, but people are yes. listening too, you know? Absolutely. And that's how culture evolves, yeah? Exactly. And the thing is, I'll be honest with you, man, uh, and the irony, this is where it gets into meta-modern, this, this whole irony thing. The irony of tragedy, George Floyd being killed, spurring this latest iteration of these social movements, spurring uh, folks in the academy, media, and the corporate realm to be more open to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and even the whole anti-racist thing. The irony is that it opened up a way for the work that I do to have more of an airing. That's the reality of it. Mm. You see what I'm saying? And it's it's yeah. ironic because I have a critique of it, yeah. but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heartfelt critique. It's yeah. a compassionate critique. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is something we need because their critique, man, their critique, where's the heart? One, no. like one of the things I'm going to, no. one of the things I'm going to ask them if I get a chance, so I'm, I'm going to, I haven't done this publicly, but I'm going to, I'm going to say, you know, movements have, have music. What's the music of your anti-racism? See, I can point to the music of the civil rights movement. We shall overcome. Yeah. I could point to jazz as a music of freedom and inclusion. Where's your music? As I alluded to, the time is short. I think yeah. we got about 10 years, man. What I, what I didn't say is yeah. that if we don't make the transition right, these same authors, you know what they say in Rethinking Humanity? They say we're either going to go into an age of freedom or we're going to go into another dark age. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think you're right. A decade. And I think in a way, even less, yeah, because like we've got a few less than that to kind of start to shift, make the make the shift, you know. Although I think I think the saving grace might be like non-linear change, yeah. Like well, emergence. Emergence. Absolutely. It's not like right. a linear thing, is it? It's like because right. right now it just seems like what the hell? We're never Chaos. gonna do it. But we're in a phase shift. We're in the middle of the yeah. phase shift. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we don't know what's going to emerge, yeah. but we have the imagination and vision and cultural wherewithal yeah. to imagine what it could be and should be at its best in terms of the extent of how we can see and think about the future with a knowledge of human history and human civilization as the backdrop. To say that, well, we see the mistakes we've made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To move forward, how can we avoid those mistakes and make things better for all of us, man? Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And Just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.